Hello, you guys. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Happy Wednesday or whatever day you're listening to this on. I hope you guys are having a great one today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of this Killer Instinct podcast. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We post weekly episodes here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's case, today we are talking about the case of Kristen Smart. This case has been on my list for the longest time, and it's one that has been so highly suggested by all of you. And if you follow the news of the true crime world, you know that this case has made some major, major developments over the past week and will probably continue to do so. So if you need a refresher on this case or have just never heard of it before and want to be able to follow along, this will be great for you too. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Kristen Denise Smart was born on a February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Germany to her mother, Denise Smart, and her father, Stan Smart. Now, to give you a physical description of Kristen, she had blonde hair. She was actually very, very tall, about six feet and one inch tall, and her family moved to Stockton, California, which is where Kristen grew up, and she has two siblings as well. She has a brother and a sister, so she was one of three children. Now, growing up, Kristen spent some of her summers working jobs as a camp counselor and a lifeguard. She attended Lincoln High School in Stockton, California, and graduated from there on June 8, 1995. Kristen's described as having a smile that lit up a room and contagious hugs. She was the planner of the family, but loved family vacations and new adventures. She had a passion for adventure, music, and the ocean. And when it came time for college, Kristen enrolled at California Polytechnic State University, which is more commonly known as Cal Poly. Cal Poly is a public university located in San Luis Obispo, California. And when Kristen left for college, she maintained a very close relationship with her family. She was the type of girl that would call her family every day or every other day just to check in and see what's going on. Now, this case really starts on Friday, May 24th, 1996. Now, this was Memorial Day weekend, and it's typically a three-day weekend for most, and Kristen was really looking forward to hanging out with her friends. On the 24th, Kristen was planning on going to a birthday party off campus, but before she left, she called her mom and actually left a voicemail saying that she had great news and that she was going to call her mom the next day to tell her everything. Denise said, quote, I kind of thought the good news might be about a missing final examination being found by her biology professor. This meant Kristen would not have to take her examination over again, which was certainly good news, end quote. However, Kristen never ended up calling her mom the next day. Now, on the night of the 24th, Kristen was planning on going to a birthday party of someone named Ryan Fell, who went by the nickname Swampy. Now, Ryan was celebrating his birthday off campus at 135 Crandall Way, which was a fraternity house at the time, and this was a party that Kristen wanted to go to with her three girlfriends. Now, later in the night, it was around the time that Kristen wanted to go to this party. However, Kristen's friends actually didn't want to go. 
go. But regardless of her closest friends not wanting to go, Kristen still decided that she was going to go to the party and have a good time. Denise, Kristen's mother, said that even though Kristen was going to the party without her closest friends, there were still people that she knew that were going to be there. So she wasn't walking in blind, so to speak. She just wasn't going to have her closest friends with her. So Kristen got dropped off at the Kappa Chi fraternity house. And at that point, Kristen was said to have not been drinking. It was actually Kristen's friends that dropped her off at the fraternity house. And one of her friends said, quote, when we dropped her off, she seemed a little mad that we wouldn't go with her. She kept saying, you go with me, but I didn't want to go. I told her, you better be careful. And she said she would be. Then she said bye and shut the door, end quote. Now, this was basically your typical college frat party. You had loads of alcohol, drugs floating around, loud music, and it was jam-packed with people. And as far as witnesses saying whether or not Kristen was drinking, there were some people who said that she was chugging vodka, and there were other people who were saying that she wasn't drinking at all. But you have to remember, this is a college party where everyone else is drinking, and when you're in the midst of a party like that, you're not really watching to see who's drinking and who's not. Now let's talk about some of the people who were at this party that play a part in Kristen's case. Now, one person in attendance was a girl named Cheryl Anderson. Cheryl also went to Cal Poly and hung out with Kristen for some of the night while the two of them were at the party together. Another guy there was a guy named Tim Davis. Tim was also a Cal Poly student who lived off campus. And then another man involved in this is a guy named Paul Flores. Now, Paul Flores was born on October 22nd, 1976, and also was a Cal Poly student who majored in food science. Now, Paul did not do the best academically. In his first semester, he failed out of English composition and math, and he also received a D in an introductory course in food sciences, which was his major. His freshman GPA in college was a 0.6, and he lived on campus at the Santa Lucia Hall dormitory in room 126. At the party, it was said that Paul and Kristen had been seen speaking briefly, but that was really it. And Kristen was not the only girl that Paul was talking to that night. The night of the disappearance, it was said that Paul was trying to flirt with several girls at this party, some with boyfriends, some without, but none seemed to be interested in him. Now, going to parties and trying to pick up girls was not abnormal behavior for Paul either. According to students who knew him, he was described as quote-unquote terribly annoying. He would always try and get with girls who had boyfriends, which would then, as you can imagine, cause a lot of problems. He was also said to be extremely socially awkward and would try to mask that by consuming a lot of alcohol, which would just lead to him becoming very, very obnoxious. And Paul really didn't have that many friends, and it was because of this that it was said that Paul would keep a fridge of beers in his room, and on weekends, he would sit in his room by himself, drink the beers, and then go out and find parties that he could sneak into. Now, at about 1.30 a.m., which technically we're now on May 25th, the party was starting to wind down, and Kristen decided to leave. And when she left the house, she actually went and laid down on the grass of the front lawn of the house right next door. And Cheryl was the one who actually found her laying on the front lawn. And when she did, Cheryl said she then went back into the party to try and find some of Kristen's 
closer friends that could take her back to her dorm because Cheryl and Kristen weren't really too close of friends to begin with and they kind of just befriended each other at this party. However, when Cheryl was unable to find any friends to walk Kristen back, she decided that she would be the one to do it. Tim also offered to walk along with them. So it was Tim, Cheryl, and Kristen walking Kristen back to her dorm together. Now at this time, Paul noticed that the three of them were walking together, so he decided to follow and walk with them. So the group of three turns into the group of four, and it was said that Kristen was able to walk on her own, but she was leaning on Paul for stability and support. The four of them walked towards the campus, and once they got to the rec center of campus, Tim ended up parting ways with the rest of the group because he had parked his car nearby, so he left Kristen, Paul, and Cheryl to continue the walk on their own. Now, while the three of them were walking towards the dorms, Cheryl said that she remembered that Kristen and Paul would occasionally stop walking for Kristen to regain her balance. And every time that this happened, Paul would tell Cheryl that she could, quote, go ahead if she wants, which Cheryl thought was really strange and didn't want to leave Kristen alone with Paul. So each time he did that, she would wait for him to catch up. Now, after a little bit of a walk, Kristen, Cheryl, and Paul reached the intersection of Perimeter and Grand Avenue, which to give you some context is about a nine minute walk from the actual university itself. Now, the three of them all lived in separate dorms. Cheryl's dorm was about a half block south on Grand Avenue. Paul lived in the Santa Lucia Hall, which was about 75 yards up Perimeter Road. And right behind that was Muir Hall, which was where Kristen lived. At this point, Cheryl left Paul and Kristen, thinking that they were close enough to the dorms where it was fine to leave her alone with Paul, and she continued to walk the way towards her dorm. She said goodbye to Paul and Kristen and went on her way, and this was the last time that Kristen was ever seen. Now on Saturday, May 25th, Kristen's mother, Denise, expected to receive a phone call from Kristen telling her what the good news was that Kristen had been referring to on her phone call the day prior when she said she would call tomorrow. However, that phone call never came. Denise at first didn't think too much into it because she thought more than likely Kristen was just out with her friends celebrating the Memorial Day weekend. However, when Kristen's friends couldn't get a hold of her on Saturday or Sunday, they ended up contacting the dorm advisor and asked the dorm advisor to open Kristen's dorm to see if she was in there. But for whatever reason, the dorm advisor actually refused to do so. And it wasn't until Kristen's roommate, a girl named Crystal Calvin, came back to camp on Monday the 27th and walked into their dorm that she knew something was wrong. Not only was Kristen not there, Crystal noticed that all of Kristen's belongings were in the exact same place as they were on Friday when Crystal left. Crystal started asking around to see if anyone had seen Kristen, but learned that no one had seen or heard from her since the Friday night slash early morning hours on Saturday morning after that party. This is when Crystal made two phone calls to the campus police, and once the campus police got involved, they contacted Kristen's parents. Now, when Denise answered the phone on Monday, she thought it would be Kristen. However, it was actually the campus police asking if Kristen was with her parents instead. 
once learning that no one had heard or seen Kristen in three days, Stan Smart, Kristen's father, immediately drove over to the campus the following day to try and find her. Now on Tuesday, May 28th, 1996, the Smarts attempted to file a missing persons report for Kristen. However, the San Luis Obispo Police Department told her family that it was too early to file this report. Now when Stan initially met with the campus police, he was given very little to no information at all about what happened to his daughter which as you can imagine as a parent was extremely upsetting and he just felt that the authorities the campus police were not giving as much attention to this as they should be now the missing persons report was not officially filed until weeks later and in this report authorities claimed quote Denise Smart stated that her daughter went on a camping trip, end quote, as to why they waited so long to file this report. Now, this statement saying that Denise said that Kristen was at a camping trip is an absolute lie. Denise said that she never said that Kristen was on a camping trip, and most people believe that the reason this statement exists was because the campus police were trying to minimize their responsibility in this case and to make themselves look better because if they just say that they waited so long to file the missing persons report because they didn't believe that anything was wrong that makes them look terrible now the first thing that campus police did was interview the three students that were last seen with kristen that night that would be paul cheryl and tim now, something that I found interesting here was that one of Kristen's friends, a girl named Margarita, who was with Kristen before she had left to go to the frat party, this friend had reportedly spoken to Tim after Kristen's family was made aware of her disappearance, and she told Tim that he should contact Denise because Denise has a bunch of questions about the timeline of that night and just wants to talk to someone who she can get answers from. And Tim said, of course, no problem, I'll call her. However, as of 2018, Denise never received that phone call. I can't speak for the last three years. I'm unsure of that. However, I'm sure if he waited until 2018, there is a good chance that Denise still never got that phone call. Now, when Paul came to his first interview with the campus police, when he arrived, he had what seemed to be a black eye and defensive scratches. Now, at first, when asked how he got this black eye, he said, quote, I don't know how I got a black eye. I just woke up with it, end quote. However, even after that and the interviews conducted, campus police said that there was no indication of foul play in Kristen's disappearance. Now, after about a month of the campus authorities taking the lead on this investigation, they decided to hand it over to the San Luis Obispo DA, the district attorney, because they felt like they were in over their heads with what they were dealing with. However, the problem here, the problem with handing this case over to the DA is that the campus police basically skipped a step and let me explain what typically happens in cases like these is that authorities will gather all the information they can and then present the case to the da once they feel like they have enough evidence to go off of and they can take it to trial so by the campus police skipping the step of giving this case to the actual sheriff's department and just giving it to the da this did not give the da that much evidence to go off of at all because no proper investigation was
was conducted. Now, the first thing the DA investigators did was they went back and read through the transcripts from the interviews of Paul, Cheryl, and Tim that were conducted by the campus police, and they decided to bring the three of them back in for a second interview. Now, in Paul's first interview that he did with authorities, he said that the night that Kristen went missing, he waited at the entryway of his dorm building while watching Kristen walk on the pathway that would lead her to her dorm building and then went back to his room and went to bed. But this was not the same story that Paul's roommate remembers. Now, Paul's roommate was not physically there the night of Kristen's disappearance. He was gone for that weekend. But when the roommate came back and asked Paul what happened, the roommate said that Paul told him that he walked Kristen all the way to her dorm room and then came back to his own room afterwards which again, not the story he originally told authorities. Now, when speaking to Paul, the roommate remembers joking once the case came out and he was being looked at as a person of interest, he was joking with Paul about, oh, what did you do with her? Now, that's not a funny thing to say to someone. However, apparently, Paul's response to this was, quote unquote, she's home with my parents. Now, That is not something you just casually throw out there. And when the roommate heard this, he went and told the authorities, the DA investigators. Now, a lot of people think that Paul more than likely was not lying about the fact that Kristen was with his parents. Two days after Kristen's disappearance, Paul's family poured concrete behind one of their homes in their backyard on East Branch Street in California, and people do believe to this day that Kristen is buried underneath that concrete slab. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, the next step in this investigation was getting Paul to take a polygraph test, which he initially agreed to do. However, he kept putting it off and he was putting it off, putting it off. And one day, the DA investigators were fed up with it, basically. And they went and picked him up themselves and drove him back to the Arroyo Grande police station. And when they brought him there, they told him that it was time for him to take the lie detector test. Now, once he actually got to the station, Paul decided that he didn't want to take the polygraph test at all. However, he did agree to do another interview. Now, this was a 90-minute interview that was videotaped, and in this interview, Paul basically covered some of his tracks by saying that he went to the dorm's communal shower at 5 a.m. because he became sick, which made authorities question whether or not he was covering up the fact that there could possibly be vomit found in his room, 
And if he says that he was sick and it was his own, that authorities just would kind of look past it. Now, there was one point during this interview where Paul's body language changes. He pulls his arms into his t-shirt and lifts his feet off the floor. His nervous body language made authorities believe that in this interview and in this moment, Paul may have been preparing himself to say exactly what happened to Kristen that night. However, this all changed when the investigator in the room with him asked one more question, and this made Paul snap. Paul sat straight up and said, quote, If you're so smart, then tell me where the body is. End quote. Now, call me crazy, but I don't think anyone in their right mind would ever say something like that if they weren't somewhat guilty. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about is an earring. Now, this earring supposedly belonged to Kristen, and it was found on the back patio by a woman who was renting a house that was owned by Paul's father. So Paul's father was the landlord. This woman was renting the house at the time, and she found a turquoise earring that supposedly had dried blood on it. However, weirdly enough, Kristen's parents were never made aware of the earring, and it wasn't until a court deposition that they found out about it. According to Denise, the description of the earring perfectly matched what Kristen's favorite pair of earrings looked like, and when looking through Kristen's earrings, the hair that her mother was talking about was never found, which kind of proves even more that the earring that was found on the back patio more than likely belonged to Kristen. However, when Kristen's parents asked the investigators to see the earring, weirdly enough, they refused to let her see it. They would not let Kristen's parents see the earring, and they actually ended up driving to the investigator's office. Kristen's parents drove to the investigator's office and asked to see the earring. And when they did that, they were told that the earring had been lost and misplaced. Now on June 19th, 1996, Paul is brought back in again for another interview. And at this time he gets questioned more about the injuries that he had sustained when coming into his first interview, being the black eye and the scratch marks. Now the authorities said, quote, how do we know that you haven't lied to us, end quote, to which Paul says, quote, I just didn't think it was that important, end quote. Paul then proceeds to say that the injuries were sustained when he hit his eye on his steering wheel while installing a car stereo, but he did change his stories multiple times on that before the car stereo excuse. It was that he was playing basketball and one of his basketball teammates ended up elbowing him in the eye. However, then when being told that authorities would follow up with his basketball team to see if that was true, that is when he said that he hit his head on the steering wheel. Now, luckily in 1996, the DA decided that this case needs more evidence and it was finally turned over to the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department, which was huge. And once it was, the authorities started searching through both Paul and Kristen's dorms. They brought in four cadaver dogs and a grave detection dog. Now, what's frustrating here, though, was that Cal Poly actually sanitized Paul's dorm room before the CSI team was able to search it for any DNA evidence. Why would they ever do that? 
Now, apparently, when going into Paul's dorm room, the cadaver dogs still picked up on the scent of human remains. There were two dogs, and each was taken in one at a time, and they both alerted to the same three spots. Paul's bed a trash can, and a telephone. Now, at this point, police believed that more than likely, Paul Flores was responsible for Kristen Smart's death. They believed he brought her back to his dorm room and made sexual advances towards her, which she tried to fight him off from, and he responded by killing her. Now, the first of many searches of Paul's home happened on July 15th, 1996, when the home of Paul's father, Ruben Flores, was searched. Authorities decided to do this after the comment that was made to the roommate, where Paul stated that she was at his parents' house. Now, this house was somewhere that obviously Paul visited often when he was not at school, but in this initial search, nothing really came out of this, but authorities did didn't really do the greatest job here. According to Kristen's parents, they believe the initial search was not conducted properly and there wasn't much attention to detail. They kind of walked around, checked a few things out, and they did end up finding newspaper clippings about Kristen's disappearance under one of the beds in the house, but that was about it. Now, the second search occurred sometime between the summer or fall of 1996 on 529 East Branch Street in Arroyo Grande, California, which was also the home of Paul's parents. And as far as this search, there isn't much that we know about this particular one. Cadaver dogs were said to have picked up on some scent. However, we don't really know anything other than that. Now, the third search was on June 20th of the year 2000 at Paul's family home again. And this was the house that was said that concrete was poured at two days after Kristen's disappearance. But what's frustrating here is that the warrant that police got to search the home did not include digging up the backyard. So they were unable to do that. And again, because they couldn't dig up the backyard, that was a huge missed opportunity because there is a lot of evidence that could suggest that that is where Kristen's remains are. And the fact that that hasn't been searched is mind blowing. Now, this was all extremely frustrating for Kristen's family because it felt like they were always taking one step forward, two steps back. They would get the search warrant, but the warrant didn't cover the most important part of the house, so they couldn't find anything with it. And this cycle lasted for years. In May 2002, the San Luis Obispo Superior Court judge declared that Kristen Smart was legally deceased. There was no body, however, based off of all of the evidence that they had so far, it was believed that Kristen is no longer alive, which as you can imagine for her family is a tremendous tragedy, not only because they're losing one of their loved ones, however, they don't have, they don't get the closure that comes along with it. They don't have her body. They can't properly put her to rest and give her a proper burial. So with all of this being said, let's fast forward to what's been going on in the last couple years that leads us up to where we are today. In February 2020, officials obtained four search warrants for Paul Flores. Two of the warrants were served in San Luis Obispo, one was served in Los Angeles, and the other was served in the state of Washington. Now, it's not clear what the warrants were for, but investigators said that they were for quote-unquote very specific items. In April 2020, an additional search warrant was granted for Paul's home, and authorities said that in this search, they found evidence that linked Paul to Kristen's murder. 
Fast forward a year after that in March 2021, search warrants were issued again for Ruben Flores' home in Arroyo Grande. This search included cadaver dogs and radar technology to search the home, and authorities found evidence during this search as well. And it was because of that search that on April 13, 2021, the San Luis Obispo Superior Court judge signed two arrest warrants and two search warrants for Paul Flores and Ruben Flores. It was on this day that Paul was named the prime suspect for Kristen's death and faces charges of murder, while Ruben faces accessory to murder charges. Now, what's super interesting here is that a podcaster named Chris Lambert created an eight-part podcast series called Your Own Backyard that is all about the case of Kristen Smart, and police say that it's because of his series that more key witnesses were brought forward that ultimately put Ruben and Paul behind bars. So it's really, really cool to see what the podcasting community can do. On April 14th, 2021, the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney named Dan Dow said that Kristen was killed during an attempted rape by Paul Flores in his dorm room and that his father helped hide her body. Investigators said that they also believe that they know where Kristen was buried. On April 15th, Paul and Ruben made their first court appearances, however, did not enter any plea deal. It is also said that Kristen's family is filing lawsuits against both Paul and Ruben. These will be civil lawsuits for inflicting emotional distress over the years that Kristen has been missing, and this is expected to be filed by late next week. So there is a lot going on in Kristen's case. And it is just great to know that her family is finally going to be getting some closure on this after all of these years, after just a roller coaster of a case in the vicious cycle of two steps forward, two steps back. It's just very, very nice to see a family be able to finally get some closure out of this. So that is the case of Kristen Smart, you guys. I am very interested to see what you have to say about it. If you have been keeping up with it, let me know. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. That again is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. You can also DM me on Instagram at just at killerinstinctpodcast. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Like I said in the beginning, my name is Savannah. I'm your host at Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you won't want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case. And until then, stay safe, guys.